Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. We're a week on from the reshuffle, three weeks to go to the budget. After the surprise exit of Sajid Javid as Chancellor, the sudden promotion of his successor, Rishi Sunak, the focus has been on what the reshuffle tells us about the power of number 10. But what does it mean for the Treasury? Is its power cut back? Is that a good thing? What will this mean for government policy, what it really wants to do? We discuss what really matters in the relationship between Number 10 and the Treasury, all the groundwork ahead of the budget, and those famous fiscal rules on public spending. What's going to happen to those? And in November, the world's eyes will turn to Glasgow as the UK hosts the Climate Change Summit, COP26. We talk about what Boris Johnson needs to do to preside over a successful summit and whether the omens are good. And as well, can the government really deliver big improvements in the country's infrastructure? We talk to Andy Haldane, chief economist at the Bank of England and chair of the government's Industrial Strategy Council. He spoke at the Institute for Government earlier this week. And afterwards, he talked to Kath Haddon about what levelling up the country really means and why economists still matter. We've got a great panel to give us the full inside briefing this week. Emma Norris, our Director of Research, is leading a new project looking at what a government plan to reach net zero carbon emissions is going to have to look like. Emma, hi. Hi. Reshuffle is always a frenetic week in government, also at the IFG, where we look at what it means. The Chancellor aside, what else stood out for you? Well, we're going to talk about the fact that a relatively unknown minister has been appointed to COP president. But I think the other interesting thing is the lack of machinery of government changes. No new departments, um, no squashing things together. So a sign perhaps that government is going to take its time before making changes. After all these months, really, of rumours, a couple of months of rumours about about exactly that. Also returning is Gemma Tetlow, our chief economist. Hi, Gemma. Hello. Budget's now confirmed for 11th March after a wobble that the new chancellor might not be ready. How tricky is it for him? So, obviously, some of the work in preparing for the budget will already have been done before the switchover happened. Um, But Rishi Sunak was the chief secretary, so actually he will have been party to many of those preparations already. So we assume he agrees with most of them? Assuming he agrees with most of them, he he will have been on the circulation list for the early first stage uh, forecast from the Office for Budget Responsibility. So he'll, he'll have had insight into the process. And there is still time to make changes to the precise policies that are going in. There's still a couple of weeks left before those forecasts and those policy measures have to get locked down. So he stood by 11th of March, and I hope that's not too much of a scramble for him. We're very pleased to be joined today by someone who's seen the Treasury inside and out. Tim Pitt has been a special advisor in both the Cabinet Office and Ministry of Justice and was a senior advisor in the Treasury to both Philip Hammond and Sajid Javid. He's now a partner at Flint Global, the consultancy. Very warm welcome to you, Tim. Thanks very much. Don't worry, we're not going to ask you who your favourite Chancellor was, but there's been a lot of talk this week about how special advisers are appointed and indeed why they suddenly are shown the door. Can anyone apply? Well, my experience certainly that it's pretty ad hoc and there's not a lot of process around it. Um, I worked for four different ministers and each time the process was completely different and it's basically, you know, post-reshuffle, who can you get in front of um, and, and how quickly can you get in front of them? Um, so there isn't really any process. I've got no idea whether I was vetted or not. Um, and then the interviewing style of all the different ministers are very different as well. Liz Truss is a particularly intense uh, interviewer, uh, whereas others are much, much, much favour the kind of laid-back chat approach. What counts as intense? She asks you kind of um, complicated mental arithmetic questions. Really? So I was talking to her about justice policy, and she then suddenly said, "What is one fifteenth plus one sixteenth? Seriously? Yep. Wow. Uh, 
Oh, but I didn't oh. know the answer, and she still gave me the job. So I don't know whether actually it's just her kind of teasing you. But okay. anyway. There was I thinking it was just the IFG that did that. Um, <laughs> we'll come on to talking about the Treasury, but you work there under the austerity of the Hammond era and the looser fiscal rules under Javid. Is it true that the Treasury is the department that loves saying no? Look, I mean, I think it's clear that the Treasury has a healthy scepticism um, of new ideas and, and new spending, partly to force departments in number 10 to prioritise. Uh, but I'd also say, and, and not to channel my kind of inner Treasury official too much, the, the, the Treasury would also say they've got lots of good ideas for how to boost economic growth and tackle lots of the issues government wants to tackle, but their political masters say, absolutely no way. You know, you can think about tax reform. So they do hang reform. on to that. that but so they, they try and hang on to that reputation for being they feel the Ministry for Growth as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll come back to all those points. But first, in a week of coping with Storm Dennis, let's start with the climate. It's perhaps the most difficult and complicated policy challenge the world faces. And last month, the Prime Minister abruptly removed Claire Perry O'Neill, who'd spent six months leading the UK's preparations for COP26, the climate summit in Glasgow in November. The government was reported as approaching David Cameron and William Hague to be president before deciding that the new Secretary of State for the Environment, Alex Sharma, will also take on that role as well as his main job. Meanwhile, Mark Carney, departing as Governor of the Bank of England, will be the Prime Minister's finance advisor for the summit. No surprise that the tension between Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon, Scottish First Minister, is already rising, given that both want to take the credit for the summit. And this week they both offered reassurances that their governments would be able to work together. We'll see about that. Emmett, let's just start with the basics. What does COP stand for? COP stands for Conference of the Parties under the UN Climate Change um, Convention. Um, And this is essentially the meeting every year of governments to talk about how we're going to tackle climate change. It's been going on for almost 30 years now. It started in 1992. And in theory, every nation in the world has signed up, although in practice um, they have slightly differing approaches. Why does this one matter? Well, so five years ago in Paris, um, at the COP meeting there, the world committed to holding global temperatures below a two percent a two degree rise and this is the year that they're supposed to set out how that's going to happen what is each country's plan for keeping to that two degree or below rise it's also a year where we need a bit of hope re-injected into the climate change process so things have been a bit dreary at the moment um you know some of the cop meetings more recently haven't gone as well so there's a feeling that this one in 2020 needs to be a moment that the world recommits to saying we can do something and is the uk really responsible for what happens in this you know or is it just the host so It's not solely responsible for what happens, but it's more than just the host. A lot of groundwork goes into making COPs work. You don't just turn up and and chair the meeting. Um, The president um, of COP, uh, Alok Sharma, this year, and indeed the Prime Minister Boris Johnson will need to do a lot of groundwork if people are going to make commitments and indeed if world leaders are going to turn up. So they're going to need to spend the next next six months doing some serious diplomacy. Success means that they turn up and they actually uh, talk seriously about these things and even possibly reach some kind of agreement. Absolutely. You need them to turn up, you need them to potentially up their ambition, make bigger commitments, and you need them to outline how are we going to deliver what we have already promised. But this is an economic challenge as much as one of diplomacy and footwork, isn't it? I mean, this this all costs a lot of money. Yes, I mean, this is a classic economic challenge. The problem with climate change is the externalities that by emitting CO2, countries impose costs on everyone else that they don't witness themselves. And the problem is that all of the countries around the world, in principle, we'd all be better off if everyone could commit to not emitting as much CO2 and therefore 
restraining the rise in global temperatures so that the climate is just more conducive to all of us living a better, more productive life. The trouble is that each country individually faces the incentive to allow its businesses to emit a bit more CO2 because that's cheaper for the businesses to run themselves that way. Um, but obviously they're imposing a cost on everyone else. So the, the challenge is for countries to be willing to tell their businesses and the people who live in their countries, actually, you're going to have to pay a bit more to be more energy efficient. And um, poorer countries have been saying look, to, to the richer world, look, you cause this problem, uh, you, you go fix it and don't look to us for... The, the compromises and sacrifices, haven't they? That's exactly right. And why, as Emma was saying, you need the rich countries to show some leadership here because if they're not willing to impose some costs and put some pressure within their own countries for um, businesses to pollute less and for their own citizens to adopt more energy-efficient lifestyles, then you really can't expect those poorer countries who haven't yet had the benefits of industrialisation to do all of that and take the costs on themselves. Tim, the UK is committed to a very dramatic target. I mean, Theresa May came out with this in her last weeks of a carbon neutral by uh, the middle of this century. Where did that come from? Um, so, look, I mean, I think uh, at, at that stage, there are a number of countries looking at this target. Um, I think it's fair to say she was at, coming towards the end of her premiership and she was, um, you know, looking to make some key commitments that might be part of her legacy. This was one that was on her desk at the time. So there was certainly um, part of it um, was was that. But also I think there was a sense that th- look, this was the direction of travel that, you know, not just in the UK but elsewhere, this was a commitment that was going to have to be made sooner or later. We might as well get on with it. And so do we have any idea what it cost? So, it's, I mean, this is an interesting case where actually nearly two decades ago now the UK government said we're willing to try and cut carbon emissions to about by about 60% from the 1990 levels. And we're, we're willing to do that because we think we could spend up to 2% of GDP a year trying to achieve that reduction in carbon emissions. And the thing that's been quite interesting is actually as new technologies have come online and it's actually become cheaper to reduce our carbon emissions, the government has actually ramped up its um, expectations and its kind of ambition alongside that. So the Committee on Climate Change, which is the sort of independent body that advises government on how we can achieve these carbon reductions, thinks that we can now get to net zero by 2050, so much more ambitious than that original target, within that 2% of GDP envelope. And and we don't really have a plan, though, do we? Uh, what to do about transport, what to do about the famous you know, gas boilers that many households have? Well, I don't think we have a plan right now, but I think government is trying to get there. There's a big mapping exercise happening in the Treasury at the moment, which is there to set out what needs to happen, which industries need to, to change, and where are some of the key trade-offs around things like competitiveness, where are some of the opportunities. And so that's happening now. I think one of the big challenges is, up until now, um, a lot of the activity that we've needed to undertake has been directed from Bayes. It's been essentially about well, phasing... The, the business department. The business department. It's been about phasing out coal. The next stage to get us to net zero takes us into sectors that are not covered by Bayes. It takes us into transport. It takes us into homes. And so it's a much more diffuse and complex um, set of changes that need to be made than those that have happened already. Is it a kind of grandstanding to talk about net zero? I mean, isn't it one of those where the first three quarters of this might be much cheaper than the last quarter, for example? And the government ought to give the country options for saying, look, how much of this do you really want to do? Yeah, and, and, I, and I think the other thing is there's a lot of focus on net zero in 2050. And that, in a way, is an easy political commitment to make because ultimately the politicians who are making it are 
very unlikely to be the ones in charge when 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 it comes to actually delivering it. The, I think the real question I'm to is: they may not be alive. Trying, try, but I think the, the the kind of real question is: are they? You know, in in order to get on track for net zero, actually, you've got to do some quite difficult things now. Yeah. Um, over the next decade or so, in order to get yourself in a position, and and it's all very well saying net zero twenty fifty, but are politicians willing to do the difficult things right now to get on track? That is that is, I think, one of the key questions for COP. I think it's also kind of interesting to ask the question to the British public. Um, we've seen a lot of protests on the streets around wanting the government to do more. But actually to get to net zero also requires all of us to be willing to change our lifestyles. We need to fly less long distance. We need to change the way we heat our homes. And so there is... And drive less and all this this kind of thing. All of those things, yes. And um, is there any proposal to ask people what they think? Or is this going to be a surprise plan? So at the moment, there is a climate change assembly happening every weekend until the end of March. Um, It's being run out of the House of Commons um, by some of the select committees, and it's asking exactly that. What are the tolerances of the public to actually change their behaviour? This is MPs asking each other. This is MPs asking the public. So this is a big exercise they've done to take a kind of cross-section of society, to bring them together and say, what are you willing to change? What are your tolerances for change um, in pursuit of of net zero? And And if someone wants to take part part in that, how do do they do that? Uh, So it's so the sample's been taken at random from the public, so it's already done and dusted. The people so your favourite lobby groups cannot just rock up and, and, and uh, have their say. Unfortunately not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what about what the US does in all this? We've got uh, obviously an American election year. I can't say that climate change is playing very high in that debate at the moment. All kinds of other things are. Um, but President Trump is not the world's biggest fan of doing lots about this. Does it all really hang on what... I think that it partly hangs on what America does, but not entirely. At the moment, this week, uh, Boris Johnson's been on the phone to the the, uh, Chinese president, checking that he's going to be attending the climate change summit. I think what China does is really important as well. But certainly, whether Trump shows up, whether he's willing to commit is also important. Of course, as you say, there is an an American election just a week or so before COP. So who knows, maybe we'll have a a different president-elect turning up and and making a speech. It's, It's not impossible. I think the other thing to say is, not just from a climate point of view, this is a big moment from a UK point of view. You know, it's it's the the, the world is coming to town for the first time post-Brexit. It's a real chance to show, post-leaving the European Union, the UK can still be a uh, leader on the global stage. So that that is the other kind of key consideration with it, I think. Or, uh, as Nicola Sturgeon wants it, that Scotland can be a leader Indeed. on the, on, on the <laughs> world stage. So, yeah. Who's going who's gonna to win that? <laughs> That battle of PR. <laughs> I think it remains to be seen at the moment, but it is a, it's an outing for global uh, Britain. So I'd be surprised if uh, if Boris Johnson didn't try his best to uh, to be front and centre. Let's move on to the Treasury. We've got a new Chancellor. Former Chief Secretary to the Treasury Rishi Sunak has been elevated very quickly to the top post in the Treasury. Westminster is full of tales about Number 10 wanting a stronger centre of government, curtailing the power of the Treasury and wanting a Chancellor who was more in tune with the thinking of the Prime Minister. Is that true? Is that a good thing? Tim, the the battle between the Treasury and Number 10 is an age-old story, isn't it? Yeah, and I I think it comes down to to two reasons, really. Um, One is personality and one is institutional. So, you know, Prime Ministers and Chancellors uh, tend to be uh, very driven, ambitious people with strong views on things. They are the two most powerful people in government. Um, there is often a rivalry between the, bet- uh, between the two of them, famously Tony Blair and uh, Gordon Brown. So I think the, the personality and the kind of power dynamics at a political level um, are often a factor. But the other thing is, you know, 
the, the the two buildings are set up institutionally to you know butt up against each other the um, prime ministers for often good policy and political reasons want to spend lots of money uh, the treasury and chancellors see it as their core duty to um, keep the, fi- the the public finances on a sustainable path that inevitably leads to tension now i don't think that is necessarily a bad thing i think it is important to have that challenge function between the two buildings to kind of drag the treasury um, away from some of its small c conservative thinking but at the same time there are lots of ideas that get put into the treasury which are not very good ideas from policy, public policy point of view sound politically popular and it is right that the treasury back them back so i think that tension is natural now you know um there is a difference between healthy tension and a complete breakdown in relations so you know you've got to get the balance right I mean, Gemma, would you say that there's times when the Treasury has been too powerful? I think there are some criticisms that come up of the Treasury quite often, some of which have some validity behind them. So probably the two most prominent are, firstly, that the Treasury can be very secretive when it produces its budget. So particularly when you've had chancellors like Gordon Brown, who have very much their own power base separate. Do not want the Prime Minister to know what's going into the budget. Do not want anyone to know what's going on on, into the budget so that you can stand up in Parliament in the budget speech and have that big moment in the limelight pulling rabbits out of hats. And that does have costs because it means that you can end up not coordinating with other relevant policies across government. It means you tend to focus on using tax to answer every question when you might better use other policies from other departments because that is the thing that the Treasury has complete control over. Um, The other criticism that is often made is around the Treasury's management of public spending. So as, as Tim says, the Treasury holds the purse strings all the time and often you talk to people further down the chain and they find that the Treasury's role can be a bit unconstructive. They feel they have good ideas for how they could more effectively do things on the ground. So you talk to local authorities, local councils, whatever, and they, they, they feel it's the department of no. Just sitting there in Westminster, not understanding what they're doing and uh, saying no when they want to build exactly. roads or whatever. They've got these brilliant ideas they think will have huge impact, totally value for money, and that it's very hard to get that past the Treasury. Emma, what does the um, government really want to spend money on now? So I think a couple of things. I mean, we know that the Prime Minister wants to spend money on infrastructure. Um, you know, we're hearing lots about HS2. Lots of roads other and trains and... Exactly. Lots of buildings and so on. But that, I don't think, is really an area of contention. I think the Treasury's on board with spending money on infrastructure. It's public services that's been the real rub. And I think there are kind of three areas of public services we're going to want to see um, government spending money on. The first is the NHS. The commitments they've already made are enough to maintain standards, but they're not enough to improve them. Um, So I think we're probably going to see some increased spending there, or at least a desire to increase spending. With the expansion of police numbers, that's going to put pressure on the courts. It's going to put pressure on prisons. So I think down the line, we're probably going to need to see increased spending there too. And then finally, you've got social care. I mean, it's crying out for money. And actually, the public, when they're polled, care a lot more about social care than they do, for instance, spending on prisons. And this has been hurt by local authorities, which have to pay for it and, and organise it, uh, get it getting really squeezed. Exactly. What about the regional development, though? Um, we've heard lots and lots about this. Um, and do you think that uh, that that can go ahead within this budget? What, what about the, the so-called fiscal rules? The fiscal rules that were set out in the Conservative manifesto, which were shaped by Sajid Javid as Chancellor before the election, were a commitment that the government wouldn't borrow to pay for day-to-day spending. So tax revenues need to be enough to pay for the day-to-day costs of running public services and paying benefits. But the government said it was willing to borrow up to 3% of national income for investment. The government has quite a bit of scope for spending on capital and infrastructure. So things like new roads, new railways, 
uh, new hospitals or schools, it is much more constrained going into this budget on the day-to-day running costs of public services and welfare benefits. Um, Based on the last set of official forecasts and the money that was already allocated by Sajid Javid back in September to some extra spending on public services, actually they unless they raise taxes overall, there won't be much scope for extra money for the sorts of public services that Emma was outlining. Is the distinction between capital and day-to-day spending really as black and white as that sounds? Though I mean, you know, the classic challenge would be, uh, you build a hospital, that's capital spending. On the other hand, you've got to spend a pile of money to fill it with doctors and keep it uh, you know, up to scratch. And if you put money into education, which is in theory day-to-day spending, actually that's a very good investment in the country's long-term future. Well, I think that that last example is probably the key one in my mind. So if you ask the Treasury, you know, if looking to tackle, you know, the kind of key challenges, Britain's low productivity and the the regional inequality question, if you ask the Treasury what are the kind of key things you need to do, yes, infrastructure would be there, some more more R&D spending would be there, which you're allowed to do under the fiscal rules because they're capital investment. But the key one they would really focus on is skills. And skills, the vast majority of skills... Um, funding will be day-to-day spending. And so you can't have a really big uplift um, in skill spending unless, if you're going to meet your fiscal rules, unless you raise tax. So is this a, a really good case for changing the fiscal rules? This has been a long-running debate in how you design fiscal rules. So in principle, um, you could think that actually it makes perfect sense for the government to say taxpayers today should cover the costs of public spending that benefits only really the people who are around today. So if we spend on the NHS and taxpayers today are using it, then taxpayers today should pay for that. Conversely, things that the government spends money on today, but that benefit future generations, whether that's building a road or investing in good teachers to teach kids today who will be tomorrow's taxpayers, actually maybe we're willing to borrow and ask future taxpayers to pay that money back. The problem in practice has been about how you actually measure this and hold governments to account for it. So, so far, governments in the UK have tended to use the national accounts distinction between current day-to-day spending, which includes teachers' salaries and things like that, and capital investment spending, just because that is a widely recognised national accounting standard that the ONS measure, publish every year, and you can clearly see what the government is doing. The concern is that if governments were able to pick and choose the things that we can ask future taxpayers to pay for this but not that actually you start to worry that governments you'd have no rules to... really worth worth a name yeah. but they have changed haven't they and the views on this have changed and uh governments have you know if you look back over the years since the financial crisis have come to realize that low interest rates might actually be here to stay for longer than they thought and actually no, I can think, afford I think, to be a bit more relaxed yeah i think there's been a remarkable change in approach in the conservative parties um, view on the public finances. You know, if you look at 2015, it was the political dividing line with Labour. You know, it was all about getting the public finances under control. You know, there's um, definitely been an acceptance that with interest rates where they are and the fact that markets think they're going to stay low um, for a long time, that now is the time to take advantage of that. The, the only thing I would caveat that with is, you know, our national debt is at a 40-year high. The long-term OBR projections for national debt are grim. You know, the long-term costs of um, ageing uh, uh, and uh, higher healthcare spending are going to put a lot of pressure on the public finances. Um, so the question in my, ra- my mind is, yes, there is definitely a case to borrow to invest, but what is the Conservative Party going to do about tax? Historically, Tory chancellors, when faced with the trade-off between more borrowing 
um, or tax rises, have said, I want to keep borrowing under control. Jeffrey Howe, famously in 1981, you know, raised £4 billion of tax. Um, Ken Clark did it. George Osborne, George Osborne raised VAT in 2010. That is one of the key questions that Rishi Sunak now faces. Well, two, as you said, I mean, one, the long term one of where is this all going? Uh, as the Office of Budget Responsibility yeah. says, you know, this is, this is just getting more and more expensive to run as a country. And then the, I guess, the short term one of whether we should expect more tax in this budget. Gemma, you've been writing about just this. Well, well th- there's, one, there's one tax rise which we know is coming because it was in the Conservative manifesto, which is that they're going to cancel the planned cut in corporation tax from 19% to 17%. So that will raise about £6 billion. Um, They've also said they will review entrepreneurs' relief, which costs about two and a half billion pounds a year, although we don't know exactly how much they plan to scale that back or change how it's targeted. Um, beyond that, I think that will be a very interesting signal of the approach of this new Chancellor, um, whether we see either any further tax measures in this budget or any signal that he is consulting on and thinking about further tax changes down the road. Emma, your top three picks for where the money should go? For, I think, skills, exactly as um, Tim has said, uh, the NHS and social care. Now, from one financial pillar of the state to another, Andy Haldane is the chief economist at the Bank of England. He sits on the bank's Monetary Policy Committee and is the chair of the government's Industrial Strategy Council. The council recently delivered its first annual report, reviewing government progress on everything from productivity to artificial intelligence, social mobility to environmentally friendly technology. He talked to Kath Haddon about the government's plans and what it needs to do to achieve them, why governments need to think about more than just GDP and why people should still care about economics. Can we start off just talking about what the day job is? You're chief economist at the Bank of England, but what does that mean? Uh, what does that mean for the average person? Yes, so uh, by day, uh, my job is to try and understand the economy by looking at the numbers, and indeed by talking to lots of businesses and people up and down the country. And secondly, to as a result of that understanding, to set monetary policy, to set interest rates in a way that helps hit our target for the inflation rate of 2%, and to support activity and jobs across the economy. So that's, that's the day job. And you're also chair of the Industrial Strategy, so an independent advisory group looking at the government's approach to industrial strategy. Uh, your new report, though, says that public awareness is quite low about industrial strategy. What should people really care about when it comes to this policy area? Yes, well, the words industrial strategy can sound a bit, a bit cold, a bit arid, a bit difficult to fathom. So I suppose my, um, my one line on why this matters and what this is about is that uh, a successful industrial strategy means uh, good work at a good wage for everyone. Can we talk a bit about innovation? It's um, got, uh, or the current government has what you've described as a challenging target for increasing R&D spend. Um, Do you think the UK is well-placed to refocus its economy in this way? I think one of the uh, central and most important features uh, of the industrial strategy is is a commitment by government to hit a target for research and development spending uh, as a fraction of GDP of 2.4% by 2027. And and as context, the UK as of today probably sits at around 1.7% of GDP. So it's an ambitious ambitious target. 
I think it's good to have a target uh, for something like R&D. We know that higher R&D by businesses and by governments tends over the medium term to translate into higher levels of productivity and pay uh, in the economy. You know, innovation is the wellspring of productivity and, and productivity is the wellspring of higher levels of pay. What I would say is that, you know, right now, uh, UK PLC tends to do rather well on issues of innovation, but rather less well when it comes to spreading the fruits of that innovation. And we talked a bit about the impact that that can have on GDP. Obviously, governments have chased GDP for many years. Do you think we put too much emphasis on it, though? Are there other measures that the government should be using to think about the success of its policies? Well, it's clear that, you know... um, that GDP uh, uh, is important. It is uh, still the best single measure we have of people's uh, living standards and and, and incomes. Um, Equally importantly, we now know a lot uh, about the other things that matter, you know, beyond GDP. And importantly, when the Industrial Strategy Council was putting together its metrics of success, we looked beyond GDP to broader measures of well-being uh, to gauge success. So absolutely, among the things we look at, it includes pay and productivity and GDP, but it also includes, importantly, uh, metrics of health, um, both physical and mental, and metrics of social capital, such as community and trust, uh, direct measures uh, of well-being and happiness, um, and also measures of natural capital, of the good or harm we might be doing to the environment. So that, that broader conception of what industrial policy is for and what it's about is deeply embedded in our success metrics as a council. Economics took a bit of a hit over the financial crash and then economic debates over Brexit have been a bit of a battleground. Do you think this profession has struggled to make itself relevant? Well, in a funny sort of way, the profession has never been more relevant than now. I mean, I mean, the accusation that often comes is that economics has made itself, and economists have made themselves uh, too relevant. Uh, they've been too powerful. What is absolutely clear is that the global financial crisis was something of a wake-up call for all of us, those inside and, and indeed those uh, outside of the economics profession. We have learned some lessons, uh, as you always do, from big economic, financial and societal events about how the world works uh, and what's needed to make the world work better. And certainly economists and the economics profession have not been immune from that learning. And encouragingly, I do see the economics profession uh, changing up quite materially. Uh, The climate crisis would be another example of the way in which the profession has been broadening its horizons Uh, over the past few years and taking a a rather wider lens view of how the world works. Importantly, that will mean drawing in the insights and fusing together the approaches of different disciplines than economics. Do you think that politicians still care as much about the economy as other issues like sovereignty and identity? Is it shifting? Well, ultimately, um, for politicians, what matters is the views of the people that vote for them. And it's clear that for, for, for citizens across the country, that their own economic well-being matters greatly. That doesn't just mean uh, their pay, uh, although that's important. Uh, it certainly includes uh, their job, 
not just having one, uh, but the quality of that job. Uh, it includes um, their local transport system and that being efficient and effective and cheap. It includes, you know, very importantly, uh, what you might call the social infrastructure in the place that they live. I mean, things like having a decent high street, having youth clubs and libraries and museums and community centres. Uh, we know that those things uh, matter massively to people's wider sense of well-being. They are also all about the economy too. Uh, so yes, economics um, still matters. It's rarely mattered more. And our role as economists is to, to have that wider lens view of what really matters and to set about putting in place policies that can deliver those things. That was Andy Haldane speaking to Kath Haddon. Tim, you were in government when the Industrial Strategy Council was set up. Is it going to make a difference? Look, I think it's a very important institution um, and it's got a high quality expert panel. You know, Andy Haldane is one of the kind of, you know, leading thinkers on um, uh, industrial policy uh, in the UK today. So I think, it, you know, and I think its report yesterday was was um, very important. No, the, 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 the kind of question is, does it have enough teeth and will it have enough profile? You know, people talk about when the Office for Budget Responsibility was set up and that is an external body that scrutinises the the government's plans for public spending but ultimately it, that has very clear moments when it has teeth i.e the budget and you have to make your numbers add up you know if you're in the treasury it matters according if the to obr those. says that the government's exactly. numbers don't add exactly. up exactly whereas that, you know hurts, yes. the, the kind of uh, re- the report from the council you know is widely picked up in the press but are there any other teeth and follow-through that it has um, that that that's that's the key question Gemma, what do you reckon judging by its first report So I think this first report was interesting because, in a sense, it couldn't be that hard-hitting because, as they rightly say, it's rather early to provide a quantitative judgment. They're very new. They're very very new. The government's industrial strategy is very new. On the other hand, I think they're actually reasonably hard-hitting in some of what else they said. They pointed out the need for an industrial strategy to have longevity, to be done at sufficient scale and to be coordinated across government. And particularly on on scale and coordination, they had some quite hard messages about the fact that they totted up 143 different policies. And most of them, they said, had so little money behind them that they just can't be done at the scale required to have any impact. And they... They talked about the problems of a lack of coordination across government and were suggesting that they actually that needs much more ambition to join this up. Well, we'll come back to that. One of our many roles is watching the watchdogs. And now, back by popular demand, it's the regent of reshuffles, Gavin Freegard, with more adventures in statistics in a section we call Speed Data. Gavin, you were locked in a small cupboard last week with only a laptop, Excel and some colouring pens, but you live-blogged all the way through the reshuffle, tweeted out some spectacular charts. Glad to see you've been let out now. What's uh, What was your favourite chart? Um, well, there were lots. Um, in fact, one of my... I, th- I suppose it's more a favourite fact uh, than a favourite chart, and it's going to become a favourite quiz because I know how much we love quizzes here on Inside Briefing. Um, one of the interesting reshuffle... Uh, fa- sorry. Dead silence in response to that. <laughs> As there always is, but I I persist. Um, One of the unusual things about this reshuffle was the number of former secretaries of state who returned to government, but in more junior ministerial positions. So the question is, how many and who are they? So Penny Mordaunt was one. Very good. John Whittingdale. Very good, that's two. 
You're going to have to Shall tell I, shall I, shall I put you out of your misery, and indeed everybody's misery. Um, so it's also James Brokenshire, um, who returns to the Home Office, and Steve Barclay, um, who sort of leaves DEXU, which uh, the Department for Exiting the European Union, which was abolished in January, and uh, he was previously a junior minister in the Treasury as well. So that's not something we've seen very much of. John Whittingdale, I think, is particularly um, unique in that he returns to the department that he used to lead um, as Secretary of State, now as a junior minister, and I think was the first person to chair a select committee that then became Secretary of State of the department they'd scrutinised. A measure of people's keenness to be still in the game, I guess. But uh, also in John Whittingdale's case, could be very um, important as far as the discussion about the BBC goes and so on. Exactly. And um, in our minister's reflect with him a few years ago, he was saying how useful it was as Select Committee Chair to have interrogated all of those different areas of the department's policy brief and then have that sort of view um, over the whole department. Well, it's something we certainly support at the Institute, (laughs) people uh, knowing a lot about their department and in fact coming back to work on it again. Exactly. Gavin, many, many thanks. And that's the end of another episode of Inside Briefing. My thanks to Emma, Gavin, Gemma and to Tim Pitt. Thanks for being with us today. Parliament's been in recess this week, but MPs are back on Monday. So what should we be on the watch for next week? Emma? Um, So I think the special advisor story is going to keep running and I think it'll be interesting to see whether there are any changes announced on the back of the Sabisky issue. This is the the special advisor recruited very very suddenly. got rid of quite quickly as well, or rather he he, he left quite quickly. And it'll be interesting to see whether Parliament has anything to say about it, whether there are any questions next week. Gemma? Slightly geeky one from me, but on Monday we will see the final set of public finance statistics coming out before the budget, which will give a bit of a sense of how well tax receipts are performing this year and how public spending is shaping up ahead of the budget and whether Rishi Sunak is going to get any unexpected nasty surprises or positive surprises in the budget. And in particular, the thing we'll be looking out for is that we get numbers for the self-assessment tax receipts from January, which are a big chunk of money coming into the Treasury. They did really well last year. The OBR in its forecast last year assumed that would be permanent strength. So the big question is, do we see another strong performance there? And these numbers really can deliver some nasty surprises to the Chancellor. Yeah, I mean, they they, they really can. And you, and you are hanging off. People underestimate how important the OBR forecast is. It really makes or breaks your budget. And I did two budgets, one in 2017, they gave us a massive downgrade. One in 2018, they gave us a massive upgrade in the public finances, and it completely transforms your budget. And so you're sitting there in the Treasury waiting for this. You wait, and, to come and you get four rounds of forecasts. And for some reason in my head, I always think they came on Friday notice? night, and they kind of either make or break your weekend, depending yeah. on what they, what, <laughs> what they look like. Do you get any advance notice? Uh, what that they're coming yes. or, or, well, or uh, will you, what they're likely to be uh, no not really they just come you out get, you, you get kind of whisperings of you know what they may or may not be doing but, I know uh, what whisperings are yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what about your thoughts about next week uh, very boringly I think it, but it will be on for me it's um, how are the treasury going to manage expectations around the budget you know all the noise we'd heard before was that you know they were going to try and do lots of difficult things in this budget um, with a new chancellor you know coming in four weeks out I think there's a pretty strong case to take a safety first approach, kick all the difficult decisions into the autumn. Um, So it will be interesting to see how the Treasury, you'll see it emerging in the newspapers, manage expectations over the next week or so about how big the budget's going to be. 
And there's been so much talk since the election about just all the things that the government might do that ex- expectations are running really pretty high. So an important point there. Thanks, everyone. We'll be back next week with more insights into the cogs and wires and wheels of the government machine. In the meantime, do subscribe to Inside Briefing on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts, and you can stream us on Spotify too. And if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd be hugely grateful. Keep an eye on our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, for everything we're up to, and tune in next Friday when Inside Briefing returns. See you then.